Welcome everyone to episode 63, Reprogrammed Stomach. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for sticking around while we took a break, but we are excited, glad, happy to be back even. Before I introduce my co-host, Dr. Dalen James, let me just say hello to everyone out there. I'm Dr. Kiki, and I'm going to be one of your hosts from here on forward. And I am a PhD-trained neurophysiologist with a specialty in avian learning and memory, bird brains, basically. And for the last 10 years, I've been podcasting. I moved into science communication once I finished grad school and have been the host of many science podcasts, foremost among them, This Week in Science, which I also still host. But I am just thrilled that I got invited to be a part of the Stem Cell Podcast. So now my partner in crime, stem cell biologist and expert, Dr. Dalen James, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Thanks so much, Kiki. And thanks to the Stem Cell Podcast fans. For allowing me to co-host this show you love so much, I promise I'm going to do my best to continue what Yosef and Chris started a couple years ago to get this thing rolling. Let me give you a quick intro myself. I, about 15 years ago, was, began my training in embryology, which led to me studying human development and using human embryonic stem cells as a, a great model of human development, specifically cardiovascular development and hematopoietic development. That's the heart, the vessels, the blood. In the last couple of years, I've kind of circled back to embryology and in, in more clinical human development in a clinical context, working as an assistant professor, a clinical lab director at the Center for Reproductive Medicine and Infertility at Weill Cornell Medical College. It's one of the foremost fertility clinics in the world, I would argue, very immodestly of me. <laughs> it's good of you to do that, yeah. <laughs> but in, in the lab here, I'm using stem cells, trying to apply stem cells to develop uh, regenerative approaches to treating infertility and maintaining an interest in cardiovascular disease and hematologic malignancies. And let me just say that I love the title of this show, although it's a bit confusing. Uh, reprogram stomach. I, have to, I, I think I reprogram my stomach for the worse the other day on oh, no. $1 taco night. So maybe our, maybe our guests can give me an idea how I can deprogram that, that reprogram stomach, get back to life here. Yeah, I don't think that's what he does. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. While we, the hosts, are going to be for this show, are going to be different. The show, you can expect the same great show. We're going to have the same format. We have the science roundup for you. I'm going to be bringing kind of general science stories while Dalen is going to be bringing stem cell science specific stories. We'll also have an interview. And of course, we get to rant, which I'm excited. Why? It's just silly how excited I am about getting to rant. I love to rant. <laughs> I can't wait to rant. Can we rant right now? No, we have to I'm wait. I'm upset. Wait, wait. Right, okay. <laughs> So with that out of the way, we have just a few things left here to make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released that will contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. Makes your life easier, right? 
Signing up also for our Stem Cell Forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cell called Stem Cell Chat. Go now, sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. There are videos also. That's pretty exciting. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Dalen, we have a great show today. Our guest for episode number 63 is Dr. Joe Zhao, and we will talk to him about his work and latest paper in Cell Stem Cell. It's about turning stomach tissue into cells that produce insulin for diabetes. And this should be a fantastic conversation. But right now, are you ready to round it up? I'm ready, Kiki. Absolutely. I think this is going to be a great, great show and uh, the great beginning to our new venture here together. I think they're going to send this show into space. This is the inaugural one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Engrave it on a gold record yeah, and the, put, it, the put aliens, it in a satellite. The yeah, aliens yeah. are going to hear our voices. <laughs> well, okay, so the Science Roundup. Let's get to it. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. Let's get to it, Kiki! Woohoo! All right. Here is my science roundup for episode 63. Do you drink wine, Dalen? Sometimes, maybe too much. <laughs> well, as the uh, mother of a five-year-old boy, I do enjoy my glass of mom wine. <laughs> mom juice, <laughs> yes. So wine is important to many people for various reasons around the world. And there are a lot of people studying how changes in the environment affect wine grape productivity, the ripening, the fruit maturation. And most recently, a paper was published in Nature Climate Change that has tracked the link between wine maturation, this wine grape phenology, and drought. So it went back, you know, climate change, we can talk about it as being anthropogenic, and the Industrial Revolution was one of the main drivers, which began in the mid-1800s. So they went back to the 1600s and started tracking the timing of French and Swiss grape harvests from the 1600s through 2007. So we have pre-Industrial Revolution or pre-anthropogenic climate change, and then post-human influence in there in the record. And what they found is that there was this link between high temperatures and drought conditions. So if there were high temperatures, it wasn't raining, it was drought. But now with climate change, that link has become uncoupled. And rain can have a real deleterious effect on grapes because it affects the skin, it can lead to diseases in the grapes, it just is rain for harvest is not a good thing. And so this link is now broken down, and it broke down around 1980. Coincidence? Mm, no. <laughs> so anyway, the, what the researchers are saying now is that since climate change is affecting the maturation of the grapes and when they can be harvested, whether it's early harvest time or has to be a later harvest time, it is going to affect wine quality. Potentially, if you're not able to harvest at the right time, the optimum time, 
worsening wine quality. And so we need to learn more about this change that's occurring and how it's affecting wine quality if we want to keep having delicious wine. Yeah, I think about a million French and Italians just got their bicycles out of storage. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what are your reasons for uh, working towards changing climate change? Well, maybe wine will do it. Yeah, that's enough. This one is a story about you because you're a man. Debatable. Yeah, well, according to a study in JAMA, we know that people in the United States are that our life expectancies are a little bit different compared to other developed nations, UK, Sweden, Germany. And in different, I mean less. Specifically in the United States, the average life expectancy of men is 76.4 years, while in these other developed nations, they looked at 11 other nations that are considered developed, and their average expectancy was over two years more at 78.6 years. And so the question is, what is this difference? And a lot of research has really looked at the over 50 mortality. So after 50 years old, we know that cardiovascular disease, cancer, the big ones are usually influences on mortality. But this study asked the question, what is killing younger men? And it looked at gun violence, drugs, and car accidents. You know, action movie stuff. <laughs> the testosterone-fueled youth of today. What is leading to their mortality? And it found that these things did have a very high influence on mortality under 50. So while the over 50 crowd is dying for more health-related reasons, that uh, it's uh, action movie stuff for younger and an interesting note here, in the United States, 17 people per 100,000 men, 17 per 100,000 men are going to die from a firearm. Other countries, can you guess how many? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was zero. Well, it's less than two. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so does that mean that all the, the bringing down the average lifespan is accounted for by these, you know, young men dying? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes, young men dying for these kind of violent reasons. We can change that, I think. It's something that the society can work on. And then moving forward from mortality to how can we tell if dinosaurs are pregnant? Does anybody want to know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting question because dinosaurs didn't have live births. They were egg laying. Uh. I mean, unless there's an egg in process inside that is found in the fossil you know, or if you find a dinosaur on a nest, you're not going to know whether or not it was pregnant just from the bones, right? Well, now researchers are saying that, yes, you can tell just from the bones. So an article in uh, Scientific Reports looked at aspects of fossil bone and inside bones of reproductive birds, there's a tissue called medullary. It's called medullary tissue or medullary bone. And it is uh, calcium deposits, which are important for egg laying, right? You need extra calcium to be able to produce eggshells. So this medullary bone has a really distinct appearance. It, it looks kind of spongy. It's got a lo it's loosely woven. It's inside the cavities of bones. Another aspect of it is that there is a chemical that's found in this medullary bone that's called keratin sulfate. Keratin, hard stuff, right? This is also important. So the researchers 
First, they looked at the fossils and they said, hey, this looks like medullary bone. Maybe these dinosaurs were pregnant, specifically a T-Rex bone they were looking at. And they said, huh, this femur, maybe we can say this T-Rex was pregnant. Moving on, they said, well, there are other things that could have laid down bone in a similar manner. So let's look for this chemical. They found keratin sulfate in this T-Rex femur bone, but not in other bones that they analyzed. And so they went, aha, pregnant T-Rex. And now, not only do we know that this one specific dinosaur was pregnant or in egg-laying form, we also now have a technique to look at other fossils to be able to determine whether or not they were female versus male Mm. or female of reproductive stage or stature versus male. Females who are not egg-laying or in that phase of egg-laying are going to be still hard to tell whether or not they're male or female, but we can distinctively say reproductive female or male at this point. So takeaway, if you can't get the T-Rex to pee on a stick, then you go for the medullary bone and the keratin sulfate. I'm with you. There you go. Moving on, we also have a study in which researchers in nature described a new method that involves a technique called optogenetics to be able to retrieve forgotten memories from mice who've been engineered to have Alzheimer's disease symptoms. So Alzheimer's disease, there's a lot of forgetting. The question is, what's happening with the forgetting? Is it because they just can't retrieve the memory? Or is it actually, is the memory actually not stored correctly anymore? Is it gone? Was the original memory deleted? So they got these mice to create a memory that was in this particular study and association between a particular cage and a shock. So in this particular location, they shocked them and the mice went, ah, or squeak. And then, (laughs) and it, it, it made a memory. Mice did not like that cage anymore if they remembered it. So they delivered a virus uh, or a virus helped deliver a gene for a protein that responds to blue laser light into the neurons that uh, are involved in these memories. And so what they could then do is put the mice in a different cage that was not associated with the memory initially, turn on the blue light and basically turn on the memory with a flip of a switch. And by turning on the memory, they'd make the mice be afraid of this new cage, even though they had no reason to be afraid of it. And so with these Alzheimer's mice, the Alzheimer's mice eventually forgot about this shock association, and so they became unafraid of the shocking cage when they were put back into it. But because of the flip of the switch, they were able to turn on the light and actually get these Alzheimer's mice who had forgotten to be afraid to be afraid in the shock cage and also in a novel cage. So they're, they're basically able to turn this memory on, which shows that it's not a storage problem. In the Alzheimer's model, the memories are still there. They're not being deleted but it's a retrieval problem. And so now this, because of this study, it's potentially giving us the direction to start looking for treatment. That's amazing. Because that means, I guess, or I'm surmising, that even if you're like late stage Alzheimer's, you can't remember, you know, anything. There's still hope that you could get full recovery, at least theoretically, if you can retrieve all those lost memories, huh? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And so this is a a very exciting result. 
But for this particular thing, I mean, optogenetics sticking a laser light in your head. <laughs> I don't know if people are there yet. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, they, they won't remember the uh, treatment, at least for the in the short term, at least. Yeah. Well, one thing we know about aging is that we can all do our best to age gracefully by maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. 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 And so there are some things that can be said to help you age gracefully, have healthy behavior. And researchers from the Oregon State University of Mississippi looked at how many adults succeed at four specific barometers that they use to define, which one, a good diet, Second, moderate exercise. Third, maintaining the recommended body fat percentage. And finally, being a non-smoker. They looked at the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, looked at 4,075 people from that survey, reported, self-reported stuff, but also measured behaviors. So because self-reported information is sometimes not so reliable, As a clinician, you probably understand that. (laughs) But out of this, this is shocking. 2.7%. That's 128 individuals out of 4,745 achieved all four of these barometers. That's not very many at all. I, I didn't think it would be that difficult to get four. When's the last time you read a study about American lifestyle diet or anything and came away feeling anything less than depressed and miserable? <laughs> Such a That's bummer. true. It's true. <laughs> so any 16% had three of them, 37% had two, 34% only had one, and 11% had none, didn't get any of them. Be honest. Where do you score? I, let's see, I think think I have a good diet. I mean, I don't know exactly how they defined it for this study, but I I think I fall within all four. I think I'm in the 2.7%. Well, I mean, I'm standing here at a standing desk doing butt kickers while we're wow. talking. <laughs> <laughs> you are amazing. <laughs> I, I'm so impressed. I don't know. It's, it's like you say, I, I think, I think, I think. I know I'm yeah. a non-smoker. I'm kind of skinny fat, so I don't know if I make that one. My wife insists on a good diet, so you might be making me two for four there. Moderate exercise, I'm not at a standing desk, Kiki. I'm sitting here (laughs) on my butt, just yapping, (laughs) drinking tea. Uh, Well, tea's good. Antioxidants, that's nice. (laughs) I'm close, maybe. Maybe two and a half. All right. Well, it's, yeah, not so, maybe, maybe not so hard to get at least two. And as we see, that was the highest percentage, 37%. But let's get more. As, what was it, Olivia Newton-John from the 80s with her (laughs) Let's Get Physical video? I don't know. Um, And then my final story, over-the-counter painkillers are more dangerous than you think. Oh, no. Yeah, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Let's see if I can actually speak the sentence. (laughs) (laughs) NSAIDs. That's easier. A lot of patients are prescribed these NSAIDs like Tylenol and Advil for the treatment of painful conditions, fever, and inflammation. We know we're not supposed to drink alcohol and take these treatments regularly. And also we've heard through previous studies that it's really not great to take these for our kidneys and livers on an ongoing basis for an extended period of time. But now the treatment 
A study suggests that it also comes with other side effects, including the risk of ulcers and increased blood pressure. Oh, man. And this study was carried out in collaboration between 14 European universities and hospitals, including a number of leading European heart specialists and published in the European Heart Journal. The summary is of taking all the research in this area and putting it all together. They suggest that when doctors issue prescriptions for NSAIDs, they must in each individual case carry out a thorough assessment of the risk of heart complications and bleeding. So like, so ulcers. These NSAIDs should only be sold over the counter when it comes with an adequate warning about the associated cardiovascular risks. In general, these really should not be used in patients who have are high risk for cardiovascular diseases. Yeah, so that's it for me for the roundup. What are your papers? I got a few. Good. I got a few. Let's talk about it. First things first. This is not quite new, new, but I think it's pretty amazing. Making sperm from stem cells, these are induced pluripotent embryonic stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, making them into sperm. So the thing that's you know unique about sperm gametes in general is unlike every other cell type in the body, the somatic cells, they're haploid. They don't have the diploid complement of chromosomes. And making a cell undergo meiosis, which is how a diploid cell gets to be a haploid cell, uniquely happens in vivo in the body. And it's been a challenge, uh, I think, that hasn't really been met satisfactorily to get cells to undergo meiosis in vitro. But this is, I mean, pretty incredible for a number of reasons. Bottom line, they're taking cells, embryonic, pluripotent stem cells, and by putting them through some witch's brew and combining them with some tissue extracts from a neonatal testis, uh, this is all in mouse, by the way, they're able to kind of coax these cells from embryonic state into a germ cell or gamete-like progenitor, and then actually get them to undergo meiosis in vitro. And they get these tiny little round cells about the size of a sperm, and then they inject it directly into unfertilized eggs. And they've shown that they can get these sperm to work. They fertilize the eggs. They uh, form embryos that then can be transferred, implanted, and form pups that ultimately are fertile, can have pups of their own. And that's a big step, right? It's yeah. a huge step. Studies like this have been done. But it's really been a black box how you get the diploid cell into the haploid cell. They just mash up some cells, put it in a graft in a mouse, and then something happens and babies come out of the mouse. But now they've done the entire thing, soup to nuts, in vitro, and then transferred into the body only the fertilized embryo. So it's a really big deal. The, the idea being that maybe if we were to extend this to human studies that we could take infertile couples generate embryonic or pluripotent, not embryonic, but pluripotent stem cells from their somatic tissues through induced pluripotency, and then use those sperm cells for infertile couples. What do you think? I mean, yeah. it sounds pretty Frankensteinish. How do you feel about this? We're, we're venturing into a pretty hairy era here. For people who suffer from a lack of being able to have babies of their own, you know, how do you help them? What, what can we do aside from getting, at this point, getting donors to offer sperm to have your own, to be able to take cells, whether or not you've saved your embryonic stem cells in from like placental tissue, <laughs> from cord blood from when you were, I mean, there are people who are doing that now. So right. you grow up and you go, oh, I've got my, I've got some stem cells. I got my own stem cells. Let's use those. Work for me. Work stem for cells. me. Right. 
<laughs> you know, it's interesting. As many as 50% of couples that suffer from infertility is considered a male factor. So yeah. there's a big need there. And this is one of the ways that we can meet that need. All right. So next, uh, we're moving on to blood stem cells. Very near to my heart. I'm going from fertility to blood. These are two things that I love. This study was interesting. It was in cell reports from Roman Galeev et al. One of the things that is important to recognize about blood stem cells is that, and blood in general, that in, in your body, there's all these different cell types that constitute the blood. But the blood is really made up of your red blood cells, which, you know, convey oxygen and, you know, mediate the metabolism. And then there's immune cells, which fight the invaders. And there's a whole hierarchy of those types of immune cells. And then there's other cells like megakaryocytes that make platelets that are important for clotting and you know, the function of your whole system. The reason why you are walking around is the blood and the reason why you don't bleed out every time you get a nick and a cut. There's all these things in the blood that are really the first line. And least amongst the blood are these stem cells. The CD34 positive is the phenotype. But what these are is these are the hematopoietic stem cells that even one of these cells, if you transplant into a person who's been totally blown out and irradiated, full body, they don't have a single blood cell left in them, that one cell can reconstitute their entire hematopoietic system. At least in mice, this has been shown to be wow. true. Wow. So it's a really powerful cell, but like yeah. most things that are big time and, and really important and powerful, they're rare. And the other aspect is that when you can get them and you take them out of the body, you take them out of their niche, they almost immediately go downhill and become these other cells, which are not self-renewing, that will end up you know, depleting the stem cell pool. So one of the major goals of a lot of groups the world over has been to, in various ways, to try and increase the pool of stem cells or to maintain them ex vivo and expand them without having them go downhill. But the factors that mediate this differentiation and loss, I guess, of self-renewal, exit from self-renewal, are, are not very well defined. So this group had an innovative approach, which is essentially they broke the system. They took an RNAi screen, which is inhibitory RNAs that go in and deplete pools of messenger RNAs that ultimately become the proteins that mediate the functions in a cell. And they took a screen that was kind of unbiased and they hit many different RNAs, specific RNAs across an entire pool, and then looked at what treatment, what knocking down or breaking which RNA, if you target which messenger RNA, which one of those will maintain the stem cell pool in a more self-renewing fate. And interestingly, when the cultures that they had, which were had the most self-renewing stem cells, were four different targets that were all within a complex called the cohesin complex. And when you see something like that in biology, it's a slam dunk. You know that all these individual phenotypes all derive from one pathway, essentially. And that really, you know, lends credence to your hypothesis that these genes and that complex are involved in the self-renewal or loss thereof. So they followed up on that and showed indeed that if you get the cohesin deficient hematopoietic stem cells, they are able to reconstitute the hematopoietic system better than controls. And that's a kind of a hallmark of a pool of cells that have more self-renewal. And they essentially came away from this with the idea that this, these cohesins are really important for self-renewal. And if we can manipulate them or knock them down using chemicals or 
mRNA knockdown or whatever means, we can maybe expand this pool ex vivo and have a more potent slurry of cells to reintroduce to patients that are undergoing chemotherapy or some other treatment for hematological malignancy. So it's a big deal for that, but also just the general approach, I think, is really great. It's what I think we've done from the beginning. You break the system in order to see what makes the system. And this was a really good example of that. So hematopoietic reprogramming in vitro informs in vivo identification of hemogenic precursors. All right. So previously a group, and we're actually planning to have Katri Moore on the show. So this is relevant. We can talk about it in more detail. So I'm just going to do a kind of superficial summary of the paper here. Previously, Dr. Moore and her group had shown that they can take fibroblasts and directly reprogram them into hematopoietic progenitors, kind of the cell that we were just talking about, these progenitor stem type cells that are able to reconstitute the hematopoietic tree. Well, they use that same technology here to actually identify the phenotype of the cell before the hematopoietic progenitor by using their reprogramming technology and closely monitoring the cells as they underwent the transition, they were able to come up with a unique surface phenotype, which is readily identifiable and could be exploited to identify these cells in vivo and to understand their transition. And that's exactly what the group did. Taking this in vitro based system, this reprogramming system, they directly correlated it to physiology by looking for that phenotype, that hemogenic precursor, that pre-hematopoietic cell, looking for it in vivo, isolating it, and showing that that cell actually could then become the hematopoietic progenitor cells that are their derivatives. And in functionally speaking, if you took that pre-cell and then coaxed it along a little bit to the next stage and transplant it, it could act like a reconstituting hematopoietic cell. So this is a big deal, really, I think, taking it to the next step, which I'm sure Katri is already working on, and she can tell us about that in the show that she's on. I think the real challenge has been, how do you know where the important cells are in a human embryonic stem cell culture system? How do you know, how do you identify them and extract them so that you can use them therapeutically when they haven't really arrived there yet? And what I think Dr. Moore and her group has done here is they found a phenotype that heralds that transition. And that's going to be an amazing resource for groups that are trying to translate embryonic stem cell and pluripotent stem cell based systems to identify and isolate a progenitor that you know, is going to function in vivo. Because really the problem is by the time you've isolated these cells, when they show up and you take them out and you manipulate them and you transplant them, by the time you've gone through all those steps, they've already gone downhill and they can't reconstitute the system. So this is a way of kind of preempting that and maintaining a stem cell pool that has potency. Nice. Sounds exciting. I can't wait to talk with her. It's yeah, gonna she's going to be great. She's such a, a nice lady and a brilliant, brilliant scientist. All right, moving on. This is kind of circling back to these screening approaches. It's amazing what we're doing with screening these days. This is a, a kind of a different approach using CRISPR, which is very hot. Super hot right now. Super hot right now. Yeah. This is called, you know, you got to come up with an acronym or you're not a scientist. Instead of <laughs> CRISPR, this is CRISPR-I which I guess is supposed to be crispy, 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 crispy. Cool. I think you should cut it to crispy. That's cool. I would, I would take a therapy called crispy. So um, <laughs> these guys, they, uh, this was published in Cell Stem Cell. 
You can, again, find the links to all these papers on the website. So this is a system where it's a screening pathway, but what they've done is they've taken CRISPR, okay? So just basic, and, you know, I'm, this isn't my field, so forgive me, you crispy people, but it's a, the fundamental technology is, is that you have these guides, okay? So you're putting, you're exploiting this bacterial system that acts in physiology and you're exploiting it to recognize specific genetic sequences in the genome of, you know, three billion plus base pairs and all the topology of the genome. It's a really complex thing. The CRISPR technology allows you to home in on a specific genetic sequence in those billions of base pairs. And Typically, what CRISPR has been used for is to introduce NICs. So if you cut the genome in a specific place, you'll recruit all the repair machinery. And sometimes you can exploit that either to knock a gene out, specifically the gene you want with high efficiency, or you can even introduce cassettes which have your own you know, cargo into the genome at a specific site. What this group has done is instead of attaching that nicking enzyme, the enzyme that cuts the DNA, they've attached a repression domain, this CRAB, K-R-A-B repression domain. So they're delivering, instead of a nicking enzyme, they're delivering a repressive protein that is going to then shut down expression of that gene. So effectively what you're doing is with very high efficiency, because that's the hallmark of CRISPR is that you get high, high efficiency. With very high efficiency, this group is able to specifically repress genes in a very robust way. And this is a technology that's going to be applied widely to form either specific knockdown, but also you can make a whole library of these guide nuclease, uh, the guide RNAs that will kind of unbiased, they'll kind of attach to sequences randomly at large and mass all across the genome. And by screening which of those specific guide uh, RNAs have an effect, you can get new insights into what some genes are doing in a forward genetics type system. So it's pretty cool nowadays what we're doing with this direct genome targeting. And that brings me to the end and talking about they and them, our prolific and amazing guest who's going to be talking about his work. I'm just going to give a brief, brief summary because he's going to go into a bit more detail. Joe Zhao at Harvard, the Harvard Stem Cell Institute and his group has shown in the past that you can directly reprogram one cell of one type into a pancreatic beta cell. These are the cells at the business end of treating diabetes. And they're really hard to come by. These beta cells typically are gotten from cadaveric donors in a clinical setting. And the race is on with the diabetes, you know, at epidemic scales right now. The race is on to find an alternative therapy that can meet that need. So, Joe and his group have come up with a really innovative approach. And in fact, in the past, they've come up with this innovative approach of directly reprogramming a cell that isn't a beta cell into a beta cell with bypassing the whole pluripotent stem cell paradigm. Mm -hmm. And with this study, they actually took a different approach, which was to look at cells that were kind of like beta cells. They went into the antral stomach, which has a, a specific population of endocrine cells that are really similar, transcriptionally speaking, they have a very similar signature to pancreatic beta cells. And, you know, maybe it seems like an obvious idea, but no one else did it, but Joe and his group. And what they did is they 
directly reprogram those similar cells with a milder kind of conversion, they were able to make them into these beta cells, both in situ, they could directly reprogram them in the body by delivering these overexpression vectors that they had and show that when you do directly reprogram these cells in vivo, they can suppress hyperglycemia in these diabetic mice for a long time, for like six months. And even when you ablate those cells, when you kill them, unlike beta cells, which when you ablate them, they don't come back, these cells could regenerate uh, rapidly after being ablated. And add to that, they could take the cells out of the body these antral endocrine cells, reprogram them in vitro, and then form these organoids of these pancreatic beta-like cells, and then deliver these little organoids in capsules into the diabetic mouse model and provide a a measure of functional rescue. So we're going to talk about this in more detail with Joe, and he's a really tremendous guy. I've met him before. I'm really excited to see what he has to say and what he's going to do next, because this guy is prolific and uh, he's not going to stop at this. I can guarantee he's got to be moving into human very, very soon. Well, that is the next step. I mean, once you show something so successfully in a mouse model, you don't just keep it in mice. Oh my gosh, we did it. We did the roundup. It's done. We're moving on forward. Let's move on. I love it. Awesome roundup. Remember that all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for our newsletter. Okay, so now let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants us to let you know all about a new cell culture medium they have that reverts primed, pluripotent stem cells and maintains them in a naive state. The new medium is called RSET, pronounced RESET. Should be easy for everyone to remember because it's teaser spelled backwards. The new and improved formulation is based on a 2013 Nature publication out of the HANA lab. And just for being a podcast listener, Stem Cell Technologies will give you a free sample. Just go to stemcell.com slash get reset. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Zhou Zhao, and Dr. Zhao received his PhD degree in neuroscience from the California Institute of Technology. He completed a Damon Runyon postdoctoral fellowship with Professor Douglas Melton at Harvard University. Dr. Zhao is currently an associate professor of stem cell and regenerative biology and a principal investigator of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. The Zhao Lab studies how specific cell types are created during development and uses this knowledge to regenerate or rejuvenate vital cells by in vivo reprogramming in adult organs. As Dalen mentioned in the roundup, Dr. Zhao has turned stomach tissue into cells that produce insulin for diabetes. Dr. Zhao, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Hi, thank you very much. Very excited to be uh, on the Stem Cell Podcast. Oh, it's fantastic to have you. We're really excited to be able to talk to you. Just to get started, can you give our audience some context about uh, the focus of your lab's work? Yeah, so my lab is very interested in the broad area of regenerative medicine. And uh, more specifically, we are very, very interested in pancreatic beta cells, which is the only cell type in the body that makes and secretes insulin that is very critical to regulate blood glucose level. And uh, if you have a misregulation of your glucose level, you're going to have uh, diabetes. So diabetes is almost epidemic now in this country. Uh, In the world, in fact, there are over 300 million patients. 
Now, most of these can be managed by um, exercise, diet, or some form of medicine. But um, there are small segments of diabetic patients that would include um, all the type 1 diabetes patients and um, some advanced type 2 diabetes patients, where in these people, there is a severe loss of beta cells. That's irreversible. Now, the best treatment for these people is to give them the extra beta cells. So there are my laboratory and many others in the world are working on different approaches, how to regenerate or produce more beta cells, ideally autologous, compatible with each person's biology and for transplantation as a way to treat these very severe forms of diabetes. There are various different approaches. The approach or method that my laboratory has been developing in the last number five or six years, and we are working very hard, is to take non-beta cells and transform them, convert them, or uh, we use the term reprogram them into insulin-secreting functional beta cells. So that's the main approach we've been, uh, we've been taking, exploring, and we have done mostly studies in animal models, and more recently we have done a, a series of we are more focused on how to translate some of the animal studies into uh, human systems. Which is really important because we're trying to treat diabetes in people, <laughs> not animals, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, Joe, on that note, you mentioned uh, diabetes, epidemic proportions now, and only rising, it looks like. Although, interestingly, I think in the past year, there was uh, we reached the apex of child obesity. I think now kids are finally less heavy than they've been, you know, it's been escalating over the last many, many years. And now we've turned a corner, but the problem's not going away. Lifestyle is, is really not conducive to good health and avoiding diabetes, as actually Kiki mentioned in one of her papers in the roundup. But what is the difference, I guess, from the outset between type one and type two diabetes? Is, is one of those is related to lifestyle and one of those is not. Is that right? That's exactly correct. So type 2 diabetes, I think majority of type 2 diabetes is very closely related to lifestyle, although there are some people, very small number of people have genetic weaknesses, if you will. For type 1 diabetes, that's very different. Type 1 diabetes is also called um, juvenile diabetes. It uh, mostly appears in children very early uh, in your life. And that is an autoimmune disorder. So the immune system in your body somehow mistakenly recognized of your own beta cells as a foreign body. They will go in and attack them and destroy the beta cells in the pancreas. And therefore, you have a irreversible loss of beta cells in a very early stage. So these are the type 1 diabetes, uh, exactly why the immune system mistakenly recognize your own tissue, a very specific cell type in the body as a foreign and try basically destroy them. That is at the moment is really unknown question. But what we are focusing upon is how to now generate or regenerate new beta cells and give back to these patients. These new beta cells, we have to provide some new, some form of protection for them 
either using encapsulation technology, which are being investigated very intensively nowadays by uh, bioengineers and others, and also, um, you know, potential use of immunosuppressants that's being used to modulate the immune system so that the patients will get new beta cells and they will not be attacked and killed like the beta cells that's originally in their pancreas. And then type 2 diabetes, are the beta cells also destroyed? In most of the type 2 diabetes patients, you still have your beta cells and they are they are uh, sick, uh, especially in advanced type 2 diabetes, because they have been living in this rather toxic environment of high glucose level and often high you know, uh, lipid level, uh, for example, for a very long time, for many, many years or even decades, they get sick. So in some population, advanced type 2 diabetes patients, their beta cells are sick to the point that they also die. Then you have a loss, a net loss of beta cells. For these people, they could also use a beta cell uh, replacement or regeneration therapy. And historically, have stem cells, like what you're trying to do, have they been used as a potential therapy for, for this problem? Absolutely. So the first beta cell transplantation therapy is basically ILE transplantation. So this has history about 20, 25 years, and especially using a protocol, so-called Edmonton protocol, is developed in uh, Edmonton in Canada, a clinical ILE transplantation protocol. What you can do is to harvest eyelids from cadavers and then transplant them to a person. So that's been practiced for 20 years, has been shown to be effective in terms of helping uh, stabilize the um, hyperglycemia or suppress hyperglycemia uh, in the transplanted patients for um, a year or for uh, sometimes even much longer than years. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to to your major innovation. I know when you were in Doug Melton's lab, you uh, were able to directly reprogram, and now you've moved on to kind of reprogramming in situ in the body. And and we did a a brief summary of your recent paper in uh, Cell Stem Cell in the Roundup. I guess before we get to you going in depth on your findings there, I guess one kind of leading question for that is, why not use uh, embryonic stem cells as an alternative source of beta islets? Or what is, I guess, the advantage of using direct reprogramming versus a de novo source embryonic stem cell or induced pluripotent stem cell derived as an alternative? to the cadaveric beta islets, which clearly there's, there's not enough cadavers in there. To, so really sick about that. There's not enough cadavers or ca- cadaveric donors to accommodate <laughs> all the overweight and obese people in the first world culture. So, I mean, I guess we need more people dying. More dead people? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so I guess the um, question is, what's, why, yeah. why are we going with direct as opposed to uh, embryonic stem cell derived? Right. Well, the question is, when eventually can we get a effective, useful, clinically relevant beta cell replacement therapy? I think that's the key question. And the answer is we don't know. There are different approaches, different roads to take to get to the same destination. Embryonic stem cell differentiation is one pathway. Direct reprogramming, de novo reprogramming, in vivo reprogramming is a different pathway. I don't think we have gotten to the destination yet. No one has actually used 
this method and treated even a single patient. So I would say all these approaches who are going to eventually become the best method, I don't think there's a conclusion yet. Although there's a great deal of enthusiasm, as you mentioned, and huge progress has been made in terms of making functional insulin-positive cells using the embryonic stem cell differentiation approach. I would say that it is a very powerful approach. It is very promising, but there are still a number of technical regulatory hurdles to eventually get this into the clinics and become a standardized therapy, if you will. Are there more regulatory hurdles than you would be dealing with uh, reprogrammed cells? I think there are certain issues that needs to be ironed out mm. for any cell replacement product that you're going to take into people that's originated from embryonic stem cells. I will just list, you know, for example, one concern some people have had, and that concern has been existed for year, years, is how do you purify your final product uh, completely free of some of these pluripotent stem cells that you started with. If some of these cells are actually in fact persisting in various forms in the final cell product, when you transplant them into the people, there is a potential to develop these so-called teratomas, and that's undesirable. So, you know, there are different ways, maybe eventually some methods can be found to eliminate these kind of risks completely. But I would say that if there is a way to start from a different population of cells that don't have the teratoma risk, and that could potentially provide a path to a therapy that have potentially less regulatory hurdles or convince clinicians that everyone to use it. So that's the reason why we are trying to develop a separate path towards the same goal. You know, Joe, it's amazing. I was at, uh, I was up by you actually at the Dana-Farber yesterday for a conference on uh, mesenchymal stem cells and their clinical translation applications for numerous disease. It seems like you pick a disease, there's a trial with MSCs being applied. And what I was really struck by is how many trials are out there. And I think it's to your point that it's a cell type that people aren't so concerned about the tumorigenicity, the formation of teratomas. And I know that certain groups have tried to kind of make an end run around this, you know, not being so worried about the purity of their population via site is what I'm thinking of specifically, sure. where they encapsulate the cells in these, you know, scaffolds that don't allow the exit of the cells, but do allow the cells to produce the insulin and secrete it. And they're responsive to blood glucose, et cetera. What do you think about this idea? Do you think Viacite's approach where they pretty much make a little sealed packet that's permeable to the cytokines, but doesn't allow the cell transit? What do you think about that approach in obviating the risk of embryonic induced pluripotent stem cell therapies? The bioengineers are very smart, so I think they might eventually pull that off. But my personal opinion has been I'm concerned about the encapsulation technology in general, mostly because beta cell is a very specialized cell type. The essential function, the key function of beta cells is to sample the blood glucose level and then pump out just the right amount of insulin at the right time to control the blood glucose 
fluctuations. So my concern is very uh, how to see that uh, theoretical at this point. I'm, I'm concerned now you are basically separating the beta cells from the bloodstream by putting a, basically a layer of inorganic material between them. Um, how is that a beta cells going to survive very well in this, if you will, the encapsulated space and be able to do their job properly for long term? I don't know how that's eventually going to uh, work. In my opinion, it will be um, ideal if some other ways can be found to you know, minimize this separation between the cells and the environment that they intend to sample. Yeah, it seems like the feedback would be essential to the system and, and its proper working. So yeah, on that note, maybe that's a good segue. What about your approach, just bypassing the pluripotent state altogether? Is that is that what kind of led you to your pivotal line of research? Yeah, so what I'm very fascinated is uh, initially I was fascinated by the biology. How can you basically reprogram an apple into an orange? That's really fascinating. Could it even be done? Now, after years of research in some of the experimental systems, I'm very convinced that it could be done. But then later, it occurred to me that it could potentially provide a interesting approach and important that have potential advantage over the embryonic stem cell differentiation approach. For example, with our current discovery that surprisingly, the antrum gastric stem cells can be reprogrammed in a relatively easy manner into functional insulin-secreting beta cells. Now, what one can do is go into an individual person that is suffering from diabetes, for example, that could use a replacement therapy. Now, take a tiny bit of its gastric epithelium in a biopsy procedure that's been done routinely in hospitals and be able to take that small, tiny piece of tissue into the lab, expand them in a massive manner into hundreds of millions of cells. And that's unpublished, but we can do that now. And now reprogram them into, let's see, a beta cell and lots of them. And then we can transplant them back into the same patient. I think that would be, in my opinion, we haven't accomplished that yet for human, but I think it's very promising and hopeful that can be done. If it can be done, that could potentially provide path to generate patient-specific, individualized cell replacement therapy that you don't have to go through the embryonic stem cell stage. If you want to use the embryonic stem cells to produce a patient-specific therapy, you had to go through the reprogramming path first, right? You had to generate stem cells from fibroblast by reprogramming them. So the whole path will be much more, how to say that, complicated in some way. Uh, whereas we're hoping that it could be an easier path to get to the or destination. What are the challenges between going from the mouse model to doing it in people? Are you doing it in a human system yet? Yeah, so um, after this, the paper just being published recently, but um, the publication process took a year. So we started working on human system about a year and a half ago. Our first, what we have succeeded so far is to develop a method to culture hundreds of millions of gastric stem cells from small 
biopsy samples. So now we can do that. We have a lot of starting material. What we are working very hard on is to now define appropriate condition to reprogram this human, cultured human gastric stem cells into beta cells. Right now, the tools we are trying to use, we are using is mostly uh, compounds, small molecule compounds. So we very much interested in developing a clinically, therapeutically viable method or technology to do this. You know, in the past, we have relied upon transfection or delivery of genes into the cells. But in order to make it more uh, therapeutically possible, uh, we need to rely on compound mediated reprogramming process. So in that way, the animal studies has been published and the human translational studies we are pursuing right now are, in terms of methodology, are very different. But the mouse study really gave us the inspiration that antrum stomach is our uniquely interesting place to try this reprogramming. You know, Joe, I, I love your analogy of turning uh, apples into oranges. I think that a lot of people in the field, perhaps, you know, when you talk about the, the clinical applications and you're trying to convey it to the lay person, you say, we'll take a skin biopsy and turn your skin cells into whatever, whatever you need, whatever you want. And I think that, I mean, to follow up on your analogy, I feel like that's turning an apple into a giraffe. You know, and I, I, the idea that it's intuitive now in retrospect, but I think it took a lot of, you know, a lot of insight to say, let's take a cell that looks just like the pancreatic beta cell or has a similar profile. And presumably that'll be easier to transition. But what follows for, for me is just a matter of curiosity is if you can take out these cells from the gut and expand them almost, you know, in perpetuity, why can't you take out beta islets? And why aren't they kind of amenable to expansion ex vivo? Do you know? Yes. So that's another good, very good question. So that's another major approach that many labs are undertaking to basically increase the beta cell mass, which is to stimulate replication. You get one apple, you can proliferate them maybe into many, many apples and beta islets. Wouldn't that be fantastic? That hasn't turned out to be easy at all for human uh, beta cell islets. Um, there are many papers published, many interesting studies being published in animal studies where you can, in fact, use various different agents and make the pancreatic beta cells to proliferate. But no one, to my knowledge, have succeeded in making human beta cells to proliferate in any significant way. So that's currently being investigated. Part of the reason I think is because human beta cells are not really probably designed to have any great proliferative capacity. It's not supposed to proliferate that much. Although we do know that under some physiological conditions, for example, during pregnancy and in some um, obese patients, they do seem to proliferate in a very modest manner. But by and large, I think the system is not designed to proliferate a lot at all. Whereas the gastrointestinal tract, as you know, is designed specifically to have continuous proliferation. There's a stem cell-driven proliferation. It's mostly because there's a lot of food coming through. There are a lot of pathogens coming through. They need to have the ability to have it. So 
basis of proliferation is being actively pursued area, but right now there are、uh, no major breakthroughs yet to proliferate human beta cells. And also, since you're not getting rid of the initial autoimmune problem, is there by reprogramming the stomach cells maybe a hope that these new beta cells won't be attacked in the same way? That's a fantastic question. We ask ourselves the same question. Our colleagues ask us the same question. <laughs> We haven't done the experiment. It is a fascinating perspective. Could it be possible that the new beta cells made from gastric stem cells somehow will be recognized differently by the autoimmune system、yeah. as things that are not entirely identical to the ones? That residing in the pancreas and therefore will be、uh, treated, viewed, attacked, even not attacked. These are questions we intend to pursue, but that requires time and resources. We very much are interested in the question you raised. Very fascinating、uh, possibility there. But even if let's see, they cannot be protected, will be attacked in the same way. I think we're gonna. Then we have to go down the same path as everybody else to think about how to protect them effectively. Perhaps giving、um, the patients some、uh, immune suppressants to dampen the immune attacks, and because we can continuously produce more and more of these cells, I'm thinking perhaps it's possible to basically infuse more cells to. You know, again, I'm not a clinician. Maybe I'm、right. talking out of my expertise. I'm talking <laughs> at this moment out of my expertise level. But I think there are different options to do this. Joe, let me ask you another thing. Do you ever just up at night thinking about how the ultimate goal and ambition of your lab is going to end up letting people off the hook for their terrible lifestyle and people are just going to get fatter? <laughs> Probably I, not. <laughs> probably not. I think people have to, me included. I need to get off my desk and walk around a little bit more, as my wife told me. Yes, I think lifestyle change, just doing more exercise, just be、uh, physically more active and eat better, can basically address the needs of a vast majority of type two diabetes patients. But There are type one diabetes, and there are also other type two diabetes. I think it needs medical help, and、uh, we certainly hope that what we are doing today in our lab, and you know, all the sleepless night we spend thinking about how to solve all these various problems, will pay off one day. As a、uh, you know, when will we do advance to a real therapeutic setting? I would be enormously gratifying. The understanding you're bringing to the field, though, is. Bringing us ahead, leaps and bounds, or I guess little bit by little bit to get us to that therapeutic point. So, good luck with the rest of your research as you move forward. Correct. Congratulations on your success. You've really made a, an amazing and、uh, novel contribution. Thank you very much.、Uh, I view that as a small step forward. There's much to be done, but thank you very much. It's been just wonderful talking with Dr. Joe Xiao. And it's time for us to keep moving through our show. That was an awesome interview. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you guys very much. I'll be looking for your work in the future for sure. I'm sure it won't be long before I see that human study coming、yes. out in the paper. Yes, yes. We will look forward to that definitely. You guys are awesome. You brought so much 
great stuff into uh, into the you know our boring lives. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank, you. Well, thank you, Joe. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. All right. What a great interview. I love Joe. What do you think? What are your thoughts, Kiki? This kind of research, it really is moving us forward rapidly to being able to address the problems, the health issues that we're coming up against in our country and around the world, like you mentioned. But I mean, to be able to not have rejection issues, to use your own cells, to be able to treat your own disease, this is, I mean, this is where it's at. So I think it's very, I mean, there are people out there in like DIY bio who they're in their garages trying to reprogram yeast to reproduce insulin so that they can have little insulin packs. I mean, there are people working because they're, I mean, this is something so many people struggle with. People are working to get past this. And so if we can really, I don't know, step by step, like we said, make it happen. Step by step, step by step. He's on like step 10 though. He's going, he's, he's way beyond most of the scientific community. Yeah. All right. You want to close the show with our SCP rant? Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, okay. I've been itching to rant. I've been waiting to rant. Although I, this is kind of for the inaugural rant. I don't want people to think I'm angry about it. <laughs> I'm just a little bit frustrated, <laughs> I guess. Guilty. Well, let me get to it today. We're going to rant about children's artwork, okay? <laughs> so again, I don't hate my kids' art. I love it. I love it. And for anyone that has kids out there, you know, it, there's something just so sweet about the kid. He comes up to you, the look in his eyes. He's so proud. He drew something on the paper. You have no idea what it is most of the time. <laughs> and, you know, I, I have to be honest, it's a challenge for me because he comes in there and he's like, Dad, Dad, this is my oldest. He's six. He says, Dad, look at this. Look at this. And he just waits there expectingly. And I'm supposed to know what I'm looking at. And I don't. I'll be honest. Most of the time I don't. Nope. And he has to tell me. But not only that, but this kid is so prolific. I mean, he's like Picasso with his output, <laughs> except minus maybe the level of expertise, I would say. What the hell am I supposed to do with three pieces of art? Every day. I mean, I'm running out of filing cabinets for this and my wife won't let me throw them away. And I'm feeling really guilty. Kiki, <laughs> help me out here. Am I a bad guy if I throw some of these away? No, I think this is something that parents around the world struggle with the prolific art production of children. I mean, like I said, I have a five-year-old and yep, he comes home from preschool and art, 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 and it's wonderful. And we've put some pieces up on the wall that we think are especially good. My filing cabinet is becoming very full also. Yeah. I don't know if this is a bad thing to do, but when he's not looking, I'll like pick the ones that I don't think are really that exceptional and they go in the recycling. Oh my goodness. Like when he's not watching, you know, cause I know he'll forget about it eventually, or at least I hope he will and not want to see it again. <laughs> Gotta watch out. These, you never know what they're going to remember <laughs> these kids. I actually found a smartphone app a while ago that, of course, I put it in my phone and then used it once and never used it again, but it, it had promise. It's called Keepy and there are other apps like it, but you can take pictures or video of our pieces of art. And then it also allows you to record your child talking about it and have an audio file that's associated with it. You can share it. And so you can share it with grandparents and other family members and they can have like associated accounts and be able to see cool artwork. Wow. That's great. So it's a pretty cool app if you 
are organized enough to get around to using it. And then you can take the pieces of art and just kind of get rid of them. But hey, I got to be honest, that, that was less a rant than that was really productive. Look at what you just did. I, got, I have productive ideas. I have another idea, too, to help people out. Give it to me. Okay, so some pieces of art, you might want not want to put them on the wall, and they might not be that great, but they're colorful, and so you can save them and maybe use them as wrapping paper for family gifts. Hmm, very nice, very nice. And then you leave it up to grandparents as, to decide whether or not to keep <laughs> or throw away the wrapping paper. <laughs> put it on them, put it on yeah, them. Yeah, put it on them. <laughs> You've just pretty much co-opted the rant and made it into advice for how to start it up. Right. Don't worry, That's don't worry, SCP, SCP listeners, this is not going to turn into a soft rant for the rest of our time here. We are going to be angry about stuff, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> I'll try to anyway. Be more angry, Kiki. Oh, I gotta get. I gotta find my inner anger. Right? It's so <laughs> constructive all the time. Yeah. Okay, everyone. Please be sure to send us your rant ideas because we like your rant ideas, and I, maybe I'll be upset about some of the things that you're upset about too. Send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email Stem Cell Podcast at Gmail dot com. Dalen. We did it. That concludes episode 63 of the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, Kiki. Thanks. And thank you to all the listeners out there. We love you guys. We need you guys. And we hope that uh, we can continue to communicate the science to you of all sides and get you some great interviews and some good rants. And be sure, everyone, to tune in for our next episode. And we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Moore, I believe, and bringing you the latest papers. Thank you, Dalen. Thank you, Kiki. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. Mm-hmm.